0: Hi everyone and welcome back to season four of the Equip podcast. In this season we're thinking about the structure of a healthy mind and last week we talked about the experience of God's love and in this episode we'll be discussing the value of a human life. Welcome Jim, it's good to see you. I believe you've been listening to some new music this week.
1: (laughs) You're referring uh, uh, to ABBA's new uh, album, uh, which has come out, um, I think, when they're in their 70s. Yes, I, I, I didn't buy the album, but I did listen to the new single, which I quite liked, actually. It brought back all sorts of memories from, from my teenage years, you know. Although, when I was a teenager, I never admitted that I liked ABBA, you know. It was a sort of a guilty secret. You know, I pretended I liked Led Zeppelin, but...
0: Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't have you pinned as an ABBA fan.
1: No. But... Well, I mean, as a teenager, one wallows in self-pity, and there is no better way way to do that than to listen to you know the winner takes it all
0: Um, well you've given me some christmas present ideas at least but you like the you like the single but weren't so sure on the rest of the album uh, yeah i thought the rest of the album well i only listen you get like a
1: free 30 second clip uh, on each one and i thought they were pretty awful to be honest
0: yeah i'm gonna get it for you on vinyl (laughs) for for christmas (laughs) oh yeah cool anyway let's get back to the topic in hand today jim we're discussing the value of a human life
1: yeah and to to help us get into that discussion, uh, I'd like to introduce a little bit of theory about how cultures work. Uh, it's actually a, a pretty simple idea. Every culture tells itself a story. In fact, one of the best ways to understand any culture is to identify the shared story that it tells itself.
0: and these shared cultural stories you're talking about, it, it's things like those told by ancient civilizations like the Babylonians, um, who had their creation mythologies their stories of how the world came into being, and the Greeks had similar. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yes, but we don't just find cultural stories in ancient civilizations.
1: Uh, Nazi Germany told itself the terrible story of Aryan supremacy. Uh, The United States had its manifest destiny. Every culture tells itself a story. Uh, And the point of the stories is to interpret the world, to shape its meaning. Um, So each story makes some things stand out from the fog of events, if you like. Uh, They they teach us to expect certain things to exist out there in the real world And they teach us to expect certain things to be valuable out there in the real world And surprise, surprise, we
0: find what we're looking for So what would you say is the story our own culture tells itself? Uh Well, the really interesting thing about our culture is that there
1: are competing stories Uh, The reason we're in the middle of a culture war is because two different stories are being told and so two groups of people can look at the same set of events and interpret them in completely different ways so let's take the, the you know the cop 26 demonstrations that are going on in glasgow at the moment thousands and thousands of people traveled to glasgow some friends of mine they stood in terrible wind and rain and so they could you know wave placards and shout slogans but the question is how should that scene be interpreted and the answer is it depends on the cultural story you tell yourself i'm not making any judgment myself here But let's imagine I was a member of the progressive left. Then I would see a group of noble-minded activists. They stand up against oppressive power structures, you know, the forces of global capitalism and Western imperialism. And so I would share the protesters' terror of apocalyptic disaster. You know, unless we reach net zero by 2030, the planet will die, that sort of thing. So the story I used to interpret that scene in Glasgow is pretty similar to the one that the old street preachers used to to tell when they held up signs saying, The end is nigh." Now, on the other hand, if I sat on the right of the political spectrum, I would dismiss the protesters as a collection of, you know, entitled little Ruperts, neo-Marxists who despised Western civilization, whose end game was to bring it crashing down. I I might agree that climate change is an important issue to address, uh, but I would be quietly confident that Western technology and the market uh, would would save the planet. So that's an example of how two competing Cultural stories can interpret the same events in two completely different ways. But, I mean, I, I, as you well know, Ollie, I could have taken other examples. Um, so, think about abortion. Those on the left see abortion as a triumph of freedom for women. On the other hand, conservatives see abortion as the destruction of a valuable human life. Because, in Christian thought, the unborn child is not a potential human being. It is a human being with potential. Personhood is something that is endowed it is created it's not a product of functional capability or to take another example we could talk about marriage liberals see gay marriage as a triumph of love over hate uh, while conservatives see it as an attack on the basic building blocks on which every civilization since the dawn of time has been based the biological family so we're all looking at the same events but we see two different worlds because of the cultural stories we tell ourselves
0: yeah, that picture really resonates with me, Jim, and, and reflects a lot of the conversations I've had with, uh, with, with people on the progressive left as well. It also explains why the progressive left places so much emphasis on the education of school children, even infants in primary schools. The battle within education is to tell a particular cultural story to children so that they interpret the world as the left sees it. Exactly. The progressive left
1: will almost certainly win this culture war, in my opinion. And and if they do, they they won't have done so by by using tanks or missiles to win. Uh, They'll use children's TV programs and school syllabuses to win. Because when you embed your cultural story in the minds of the young, then they will see the world as you see it. The story becomes so ubiquitous that the upcoming generation won't even be aware that it is a story. They won't be aware of its existence. It'll become like water to a fish. I mean you and I might look into a pond of fish and ask ourselves, what would it be like to live in water all the time? But if you asked a fish what it would be like to live in water all the time, the fish would be terribly confused, because for it, water is
0: all there is. So once the cultural story is embedded in the minds of children, they won't even see it as a set of beliefs about the world at all. They'll just assume it's the way reality works. Yes. Now, we can take that idea, the idea of a cultural
1: story, and we can apply it helpfully to the question that we address today. That's the question of human value. Because the value you place in yourself will depend entirely on the basic story you use to make sense of the world. So if you've imbibed a false story or or a mixture of false stories, then you will have a mentally unhealthy sense of your own value. Now, I could put that more positively by saying, if I want to develop a mentally healthy sense of my value as a human being, then I must locate myself
0: within a true story. And that's a phrase I've heard you use before, Jim, and it's an interesting one. What what do you mean by locating yourself in a story? Well,
1: all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I I don't care if you're talking about Cinderella or war and peace. Uh, Every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when it comes to the big cultural stories that we tell ourselves, we obviously live in the middle bit of the story. But the middle only makes sense when we locate it within the framework of the beginning and the end. That's why origin stories are so important in in ancient and modern civilizations. At the other end, the thing we call eschatology is equally important. So when I, I talk about locating ourselves in a big story, I mean that we make sense of the middle bit, the bit we're living through, by understanding it in the context of the beginning and the end.
0: Mm. And I can see how false stories could have a massive impact on how we value ourselves. So if naturalism is true, then human beings are just collections of molecules that emerge from some sort of primordial slime. We're really just machines that protect and transmit DNA. And at the end of the story, it's equally bleak because the universe will end up experiencing heat death. So we're just DNA transmission machines that come from nothing and return to nothing. And it's really impossible to derive any sort of value from a story like that. I would argue that the religions of the East tell an equally false story
1: about human value. Buddhism and Hinduism see personal identity as an illusion. They teach that enlightenment comes when the self dissolves into some sort of cosmic soup, what they call the absolute and personal. Now, if that
0: story is true, then I as an individual have no objective value. What is the psychological impact of believing deep down that I have no objective value?
1: Yeah, well, in the West, uh, most people are trying to cover up that void, Um, Using the fig leaf of what we might call A performance driven life (laughs) I was trying to think of an illustration Of this point Ollie But the only thing I could come up with was You know that weird place in Titanic Quarter I think it's called Vertigo It's an indoor skydiving (gasps) centre Have you been Jim? (laughs) That's just mean A a turbine powerful enough to lift me off the ground Has yet to be invented
0: (laughs) We should definitely go there for our Equip Christmas party That's where we're going to go And play ABBA en route (laughs) I'm going to ignore that. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, the only thing, I, uh, the closest I've come to it, is I've seen a photo of the place, and so there's there's this there's this uh, tall glass column which is built on top of this massive wind turbine, and there's a narrow little doorway that, uh, that allows someone to squeeze inside the column, and the force of the air is so great that it causes the person to rise up into the air and gives them the sensation of flying. Have, have you been on this? No, I've never been. No, well, Christmas <laughs> is when it's happening. Uh, yes. <clears throat> anyway, I wondered if that picture. Uh, provides a helpful illustration of how our culture thinks about human value. So, we we don't have any intrinsic ability to fly left on our own, if you like. We would simply crash to the ground. But we're held aloft uh, by the affirmation of others. You know, there's so much talk from the progressive left these days about the need to affirm them. Society's job is to be the wind beneath our wings. And according to that story, I only have dignity and value when I receive it from others, their affirmation of me is the force that keeps my self worth aloft.
0: Yeah, no, that is that's actually a very helpful illustration, Jim. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> no, genuinely, it does make a lot of sense, and it, it you cannot <laughs> recover now. Ollie. You have you have ruined my analogy, <laughs> but but it, it's so different from the Christian view of value, isn't it? So uh, the Apostle Paul once said that he was regarded as the scum of the earth, but the hatred and rejection he experienced from society never affected his sense of self-worth, did it? That's right. His resilience came completely from the truth of the Christian story about value.
1: Now, before we get to the true story, I want to think about another false story, and I have to, I regret to say it's a religious one. In fact, it is a distorted view of the Christian story about human value, and I'm talking here about a wrong view of the doctrine of original sin.
0: And it's interesting that you raise this point, because I was amazed over over the past few weeks to see a lot of discussion online about original sin. There is a woman called Catherine Burblesing who caused a storm by saying that original sin is real, and she's known as Britain's strictest head teacher. Uh, She's also a government advisor. And even though she's an atheist, she believes that all children are naturally bad.
1: Yeah, I read an article about that in The Spectator last week. Now, we have to think really deeply about what the doctrine of original sin means. The, The false religious story can best be explained by saying that it ignores the first two chapters of Genesis and starts in Genesis 3 with the story of humanity's fall. So this false religious story begins in the wrong place. I was raised in a a small evangelical church in North Belfast, and some of the sermons I had to endure gave me a false view of human value. Uh, Some preachers, not all of them, but some preachers told me that I was a loathsome worm. Even my attempts to do good were like filthy rags. I was a rotten, worthless piece of garbage that was incapable of doing anything good. I remember one man leaning over the pulpit and saying repeatedly, we are nothing. Even some of the hymns I had to sing taught that false idea. I remember one that called me a guilty, daring worm, which (laughs) must rate as the worst lyric ever written. Now, the crucial element of this false story is that I was a loathsome worm from birth. Even before I had learned right from wrong, Some preachers told me that God saw me as a wicked creature that was legally guilty before him. Now, this is the false teaching given by Job's comforters. They tell that poor suffering man, I think it's in chapter 25, that he is a disgusting maggot. At its root, what we're encountering here is the old Gnostic hatred of human beings. But quite a number of evangelicals have imbibed it, and as a result, they have a really confused understanding of themselves.
0: I'd like to explore the doctrine of original sin with you in more detail later on, Jim. But let's move from false stories about human value to the true story. What is Christianity to say about human value? Okay, well, as I said earlier, the
1: Christian story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the beginning is told to us in the first three chapters of Genesis. The end is told in Paul's epistles and in the final chapter of Revelation. And so we locate ourselves in the story of man's creation and his recreation. Now, the central point I'm going to make here is that the beginning of the story is extremely nuanced. If you compare it with the origin stories employed by uh, Enlightenment thinkers, uh, we might say someone like Thomas Hobbes begins in Genesis 3. He ignores Genesis 1, so he tells a story of brutish, primal man who's redeemed by the civilizing force of social institutions. On the other hand, um, the Romantic movement... um, Uh, exemplified by someone like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, completely ignores Genesis 3, completely ignores the fall. He invents an Eden without God, uh, what he calls a state of nature, and Adam and Eve become the noble savages who are brought low by the oppressive power structures of society. In contrast, the true story of Genesis is really sophisticated. The first simple point (laughs) I'm going to make is that Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. Never ever start your presentation of the gospel in Genesis 3. Christianity has an incredibly high view of humanity. It is in the first chapter of the Bible that we're told that human beings, male and female, are made in the image of God. Uh, Theologians use the Latin term uh, imago dei, and I quite like that because it gives a sense of the the sheer dignity and value that has been bestowed upon us. I mean, think about the archangel Michael. Uh, He wouldn't dare to call himself a creature made in God's image, and yet, Little creatures of dust like us can do so. So if someone asks you what the Bible says about the value of a human being, you can point them to Genesis chapter 1. You are a magnificent, physical, rational, moral, spiritual creature of gender made in the image of God. You have a soul that will last forever. One day you'll be given a glorified body that will allow you to inhabit both heaven and earth. But then, after Genesis 1, comes Genesis 3. And it is there we read of man's terrible fall humanity rebels against God. We try to live independently from him. And from that fateful decision comes all the horrors of this fallen world. Sin has pervaded every aspect of our personalities. There is no part of us that is untainted by sin. We're still morally alive in the sense that we can form moral judgments, but we are spiritually dead, cut off from the relationship with God. And so we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. Now that story, Ollie, is really nuanced. As someone put it, we are both marvellous monsters and monstrous marvels, capable of soaring good and sordid evil. But Christianity won't allow us to lapse into Eastern dualism. Good, says the Bible, will eventually triumph over evil. Even now, in the middle of the story, sin doesn't completely destroy the imago day.
0: There's a Bible teacher in England called Vaughan Roberts, and he once said that human beings are like a painting, an artistic masterpiece that has been vandalized. We have incredible value, we had real moral beauty, but sin has defaced the image of God in human beings. Yeah, that's such a helpful analogy because it allows the story of salvation to be described uh, correctly as
1: a restoration. The damage done by sin will be carefully removed, allowing the beauty of God's character to shine through our lives. Now, in fact, that restoration picture, while it's true, is, is inadequate because God's plan for you is much more ambitious than Eden restored. He will take our little lives and transform them into sons and daughters of the Most High. He will develop the, the capabilities, the capacities, with uh, which we need to take on positions of real responsibility in the world to come. So rather than saying the trajectory of humanity's story as a U-shape, I think we should
0: see it more like a hockey stick, because the end of the story will be infinitely more glorious than its beginning. I'd like to return now, Jim, to the doctrine of original sin. Many non-Christians think that it's just unfair of God to allow us to be born sinful. The late Christopher Hitchens once said, God makes us sick and then commands us to be well. Well, that statement is simply untrue. Sin makes us sick
1: and God offers us a cure. But I do take your point, Ollie. I guess I would say two things in response to the charge of unfairness. First, um, being part of a corporate entity called humanity, well, that's just part of the deal of being human. We have parents and grandparents and so on. We aren't standalone beings, and that's just part of the design plan for humans. I can't divorce who I am from the choices my grandparents and parents made when they were alive. The second thing I'd say is that the doctrine of original sin, when it's rightly understood, is a sympathetic doctrine. It explains to us why we are the way we are. So we should imagine ourselves to be in a doctor's surgery, not a law court, when original sin is being discussed. You are riddled with a terrible cancer, a spiritual cancer called sin, the divine physician tells us gently. As I read scripture, that diagnosis does not of itself make us guilty. We are guilty before God because, as Paul says in Romans 3,
0: all have sinned. In other words, I'm guilty before God because of my actions and my choices. Some Christians translate another verse of Romans, Romans 5.12, in a way that allows them to argue that original sin does entail guilt. So in the ESV, the verse reads, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Yeah, the key phrase in that verse is is the last clause. Does
1: death spread because all sinned, or does death spread because all men have sinned? Now, that's just one word, but a huge amount of theology hangs upon it. Now, at the level of syntax, both translations are valid. But there are detailed arguments which support the translation that reads, all have sinned, which means that our actions and our choices determine our legal standing. Now, of course, Christians do disagree in this point. You're quite right, Ollie. But I would argue that Scripture distinguishes between the effects of original sin and the guilt of original sin. The divine judge, I would argue, doesn't blame people for being born sinful. Otherwise, a two-day-old baby would be guilty before God, and that seems to me monstrous.
0: This season of the Equip Project podcast is about the structure of a healthy mind, and a lot of our conversation in this episode might seem a little bit theoretical. Why is it important for someone's mental health to live within the true story of humanity's creation, fall, and recreation? How does that structure help someone become convinced that they are in fact valuable. God never regards a human being as a loathsome worm.
1: To God, you are incalculably precious. Maybe some listener just needs to hear those simple words again. And I'm a pastor at heart, so I'm going to repeat them. To God, you are incalculably precious. We live in a world where many people think that a human being has no more value than a pig or a dog. In fact, some philosophers argue that a pig or a dog has greater moral worth than a human being with dementia, for example. But no matter how badly damaged a human being becomes, never forget that they bear the Imago day. I was singing with this, not long ago I walked past a, a drug addict who lay in a doorway in, in Lower Crescent, and he was shivering uncontrollably under some cardboard. And I saw his sunken, ravaged face, and I thought about the ghastly vandalism of sin. Not just the addict's personal sin, but the sin of a society that created the pathways he had fallen into. And yet, at the same time, that poor man still bore the Imago day. He is loved by his Creator. From a pastoral perspective, it's so important to join together Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. We are magnificent physical, rational, moral, and spiritual creatures of gender. We have souls that will last forever. But sin has polluted and damaged every aspect of our personalities. There's no part of us That has escaped the ravages of sin. And it is at this point, Ollie, that the sheer beauty of God's character shines most brightly. Here's the thing. God knows the very worst about you. He has walked through every dark recess in your mind, every idolatrous chamber in your heart. He knows all your secrets. And yet he loves us. He stands in the wreckage of our sinful minds and says to us, You are incalculably precious. He says, I am going to restore you, make you into a son or daughter who will shine for all eternity. And to prove that I'm not just speaking pious words, look at the cross of Christ. Come and see what I think of you. You are my child. And I have put my very name against the project that will transform you into the glorious creature who will one day reign in heaven with Christ. So even if the world does treat you like the scum of the earth, you can know in your heart that you have supreme value because to me, says God, you are precious. And that, Ollie, is the value of a human life.
0: Thank you, Jim. That's a really good note to end on today. We'll be back next week with an episode entitled The Removal of Shame and Guilt, and that's something that many Christians struggle with, so I think it'll be a significant episode. For now, though, wherever you're listening, have a great week.
1: We should really finish with some album music.
0: <laughs> Don't shut me down. I'll see if that can be arranged. What well, if he gets sued, though? <laughs> Just 30 seconds. Imagine, getting, imagine getting sued by Apple. You'd be allowed be, 30 seconds, I reckon. That would be a great moment for the Equipment <laughs> <Junk> podcast. <laughs> oh, dear.